0: saw Chase Elliott increase his crash frequency and also his win total. A deeper look at an interesting tweet comparing Martin Truex Jr. and Ricky Stenhouse Jr. And as always, our Dover preview. But first, let's start how we always do. This is episode 37 of Positive Progression. This is the John Andretti edition. David, always fun to talk about the Andretti racing family. If you don't know, Mario Andretti, of course, has a twin brother named Aldo. Aldo has a son named John. And that son, John Andretti, most of his racing success came in the NASCAR Cup Series. And 4 time, man, he drove a wonderful, memorable,
1: purple sometimes, number 37 car. Alan, I think I'm going to take this opportunity to bring our listeners behind the scenes about how we make positive regression. We do... Show notes, and from those notes we do homework, and I fully admit I treat this segment like uh, Saturday Night Live treats its cold open. It's the last thing I touch, but I do get to it. It's important that we nail it because it sets the tone for the rest of the show, which is to say my preparation for uh, this week's episode a little weird. It consisted of me staring at a purple and orange Number 37, driven by John Andretti. And, Alan, I looked at that picture and I repeated to myself, purple, purple, purple. And that is where my genius comes from because that led me down the rabbit hole. Little Caesars has been around since 1959. That was one of the sponsors on the cars. Never at any point was there purple in their logo. The first store called Kmart, which is the other sponsor on this car, opened in 1962, including then and since then. Their colors have never included purple. <laughs> this means that someone at Cranefish Haas Racing made a conscious decision to make this car purple And I'm going to tell you right now, Alan, I've been thinking about this all day. I'm consumed by it. Why why, why purple? I mean, Richard Petty had leverage over STP, making the car Petty Blue instead of STP Red. But what could possibly have been the leverage here? I've given this far more thought than I should have. So talk me off the ledge and tell me about John Andretti, Alan.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know the answer. Maybe that is one of those mysteries that a listener can solve or one day we will have the answer to. And hopefully it'll be just as interesting as, uh, you know, worth your time in thinking about it. But the fact that we're spending so much time on the, the color of the car. I think that lends to some of the stats that John Andretti had in the racing uh, NASCAR Cup Series. Look, he did have two wins. They were not in the 37 car. But when you look back at his career, memorable win at Martinsville, memorable win at Daytona, two completely opposite tracks. But, uh, he raced for, look, think, think of the people he raced with. He raced for Richard Petty Motorsports. He's in an Andretti. He raced for Kale Yarbrough. I mean, the, the, the cross section of different racing legendary names
1: is strong with this relationship. And it all starts with John Andretti. And he raced for Dale Earnhardt too. Yes.
0: Oh, yes. In the so, world.
1: I mean, he was at, a, he was at an interesting intersection for any driver. John Andretti's career really hit high notes. Yes, he won at Daytona and we can always write off Daytona as a volatile race, but I believe he pretty much dominated that event if if memory serves me. But winning Martinsville isn't easy. That you you can't fall ass backwards into a victory at Martinsville. I mean and he did that. And Uh, And lest we forget, Alan, he was the first person to do the Indianapolis 500 Coca-Cola 600 double in 1994. His career hit the high notes. Yeah, good stuff and good memories of
0: him. Um,
1: Let's not forget the two
0: wins and just uh he stuck around for, for a long time racing for a lot of different teams and we can't forget his biggest battle right now. He's battling colon cancer and uh, we did a great story with him. Adam Alexander did on Race Hub last year. Uh Still in that fight though, John Andretti is, so let's not forget that. Keep up the good fight. John, thank you for all the racing memories and uh, we look forward to talking about you in the future. Maybe solving the purple mystery. David, if I ever see him, I will ask about the purple mystery car deal please do all right episode 37 the john andretti edition all right let's start off with a quick five minute review of the roval david because if you told me before the race that chase elliott was one of the favorites or would you be surprised if chase elliott won the roval a road course i would say no i wouldn't be surprised he's got great success at a lot of these uh, tracks obviously Watkins glen two wins there But seeing how he did it and what his day consisted of, including a crash, I am a little bit surprised, David, that Chase Elliott came back to win the Roval in pretty awesome fashion, including one of the more memorable burnout celebrations that we will ever see. Give me your perspective. How did he come back and do this?
1: He does not do any of what we saw on Sunday if he did not have exceptional speed. And he had the second fastest car in this race. He had the fastest car across all three road course races this season. After the race, I spoke with Alan Gustafson about the origin of their current road course setup for that number nine team. He pointed to Elliott's rookie test in 2016 at Watkins Glen. Now, most rookies, when they test under the watch of NASCAR are just trying to get laps in, a feel for the car at a certain track as to not embarrass themselves come race day. That's very important to NASCAR. But here was Elliott's team in the early stages of building what is now an industry-leading setup. Uh, this isn't the norm, but that is what Gustafson pointed to. He said that test was the basis of everything that you've seen across the last two years. And of course, he is now a three-time road course race winner. Alan, despite the volatile nature of the Roval race, it was contested by the two cars, Kevin Harvick and Chase Elliott, that contained the most speed in the race. In the end, the better road course racer, and yes, I'll say that, won this race, Elliott's Methodical long run passing came into play in the waning laps, and he took a very fast race car, but turned in a legitimate heady pass on Harvick to take the lead and the eventual win.
0: You talk about Elliott's speed, but when he was setting up the winning pass, there was a late race restart, six laps to go, and he was third, and the inside line had not been quite kind to anyone over the weekend, and Chase Elliott lines up third, ends the lap in the lead coming off that final chicane. Take us through that lap, David, because to set that up and get that pass on Kevin Harvick, that's what ended it.
1: Yeah, and Elliott is – this is what makes him a very good long-run passer is the setup. He he probes. He looks for opportunities before he takes his opportunity, and uh, that's what he did here – Harvick, Elliott, and Martin Truex drove nose to tail through the backstretch chicane, and Elliott he looked to make a pass, uh, but he could not outbreak Harvick well enough to pass him right then. But it was on the exit of the backstretch chicane on to uh, onto the NASCAR oval. Elliott pulled to the outside of Harvick, and Allen, I think this was a probe because if you watch this pass carefully. There is a moment, it's a slight hesitation, it's a bobble where I think Elliot would have slipped right back under Harvick and stayed underneath him going into the front stretch chicane, but quickly realized, "Oh no, I have a run. This this is for real and this is happening." So what I believe was a probe turned out to be a pass. So kudos to him. He picked up on that quickly. I mean, there's no looking back at that point. He went with that just before the entrance to the front straight chicane. He was clear from that point forward. And Alan, you know, last week we we talked about, I mentioned, I didn't know where the passing on the Roval was going to come from. Uh, on Saturday in the Xfinity race, AJ Allmendinger made a pass, leaving the road course section onto the NASCAR Oval. Chase Elliott's pass for the win emulated that. It was a different area of the racetrack, but the transition is where we saw a lot of the most efficient action in the passing game um, across these two races. Chase Elliott really took advantage of that opportunity there.
0: Yeah, and he set himself up going into that front stretch chicane, being uh, on the inside, if you will. So you're on the outside coming through NASCAR three and four, and then you end up being on the inside for that right turn, uh, and that's where you ended up getting him. And then you know, by the time they got to the first turn, you know they crossed the start finish. I mean, Chase Elliott was gone. I mean, he he already had car lengths of an advantage. So once he got the lead, it was over. Then I I even talked to Kevin Harvick after the race, and sometimes like like any driver, you can be a little surly. You know, you you have a fast car, you run well, you don't get the the win or. You're just not happy. And I'm not saying Kevin Harvick was content with second, but he wasn't mad. You know what I mean? Like clearly yeah. Chase Elliott had a great car. They got beat by that. And he said, you know, with all the restarts at the end, once the nine was back in the rear view mirror, it was just going to be hard to, to stop such a good car. So Kevin Harvick, given the respect or, or the proper uh, respect there in terms of, he knew what they were up against. And he, you know, they actually had a good weekend. They improved a lot. The four car did over last year at the Roval, but, um, Chase Elliott for Hendrick Motorsports gets the win in second place. Kevin Harvick didn't even get second. Um, Alex Bowman kind of out of nowhere, uh, at least toward the end. It was like, where is this guy coming from? Comes back, finishes second, ends up advancing in the playoff. This after starting from the back of the field because he crashed in final practice with only a few seconds to go. Goes to a backup car, no laps on the thing, and starts the day in last. Crashes early on in the race ends up in another conflict with Bubba during the race, which I kind of gave him crap for I'm like alex why are you why are you concerning yourself with this during a race you're trying to advance in the playoff with but look at the end of the day he gets the second place finish a charge at the end what'd you think of his day david
1: well i i mean it was it was quite interesting so we knew going in that he had a backup car and this backup car had the pedigree of last year it was it was a very uh, a good performing car but He had the 15th fastest car in the race overall. And in the fourth and final quarter of this race, that very same car ranked as the third fastest car. And I will credit two things for this, the entrance of clean air into his situation and the combination of him and Greg Ives figuring out how to make this car better over the course of the race. It's not an easy thing to do, especially on a road course race. They had zero practice time with this car. And Alan, I understand the pedigree of the car was good. However, it was the backup car for a reason. Mm -hmm. The primary was massaged more in the buildup to this race. And there used to be a misconception about this. I haven't heard it lately. I think the discourse around NASCAR has become more intelligent. But you'd hear this especially during speed weeks, as if it was part of some grand design, that the backup car is often better than the primary. And (laughs) That's not true at all. No, not at all. If the backup car was better, if it was paid more attention, it would be the primary. So despite the car's pedigree, it was a disadvantage. And that's without considering his starting from the rear. Alan, this was a day that went from, I, I mean, think of the story headlines afterwards. It would have been Alex Bowman implodes. And instead it was Alex Bowman is a hero. Yeah, and it, it was a hell of a run,
0: especially when you find out later, uh, as I said on Race Hub, I mean, when he needed to be at his best, he was feeling his absolute worst. Uh, the kid was just incapacitated after the race, just dehydrated, had been feeling well all week. So to to put that storyline in it with the drive that we saw, it was certainly memorable. So uh kudos to Alex Bowman, and we'll be talking to him. And because of this podcast, David, I just know how good and strong Uh, he is at a track like Kansas, which is in the second round. And let's not forget, second at Dover, second at Talladega, and second at Kansas earlier this year. And those happen to be the three tracks that the Cup Series goes to in the next few weeks. So yeah, advancing was really important to Alex Bowman and the 88 team. He advanced, David. Four others did not. And we did this, uh, heading into the playoff. And we're going to do it for every, after every elimination race, a little requiem for those drivers who were eliminated in this round and no longer chasing that title. David, one of them was Eric Jones. Eric Jones had a just an awful playoff. Um, some of it was just bad luck. Obviously, some of it performance. Some of it, uh, say, at the Roval, he crashed and ended up, you know, some people we saw crash and move on and finish second. Others, like Eric Jones, crashed and got a hole in the radiator, and their race was done. So Eric Jones's title hopes are done. Obviously, his season is not, but we're going to look back uh david looking at eric's year obviously he got the win the season isn't over already he has tied his top the number of top five finishes that he has with nine that's how many he had in 2018 and we still have you know a bunch of races to go but he's got some work to do if he wants to tie the same number of top tens that he had one year ago and what i'm getting at there is you could argue i I mean production wise his peer rating he took us a little step backwards this year, David, in terms of what he should be doing with the car in terms of production. Um, one kudos I will give him. When you look at the speed charts, obviously Joe Gibbs Racing has been so good and so fast, and Denny Hamlin, Kyle Busch, and Martin Truex Jr. have been dominating so many statistical categories. Pound for pound, I think the 20 car was about top 10 for central speed right now. That all of a sudden jumped up when we went to tracks that were one mile to 1.49 miles in length. And David, do you know which track falls into that little category? Uh Dover does. It, well, Dover, and I was looking at Darlington, where he won. So, oh, yeah, uh, there you go. Uh, that oh, makes I, a lot more sense. Yeah, on those tracks, he jumps up to fourth. So they were doing something right there on tracks, like in that middle length, if you will. And obviously, it paid off at a track like Darlington, where he got the win. But. He really needs, if we're going to look at next year, I think just compared to his teammates, when you look at the speed charts and where the 18, the 11, and the 19 were doing so well, the 20 car took a big dip in speeds on mile-and-a-half tracks. And if you're going to succeed and compete, at least with your teammates, again, like we've said before, you got to compete with your teammates first before you start competing with everyone else and really being a title contender – they got to have to pick up the speed and performance of the 1.5-mile tracks, and that's where I would think an improvement is needed for Eric Jones.
1: Yes, and we talked before about uh, Crew Chief Chris Gale and his race calling, and it was more risk versus stability in getting the stage points. He was top-heavy. In his finishes, you're right. Like he's already clinched the same number of top fives. He's still striving to get the same number of top tens and stacking points uh, during the regular season. Maybe would have been better served. Certainly would have been better served in in uh, in round number one. He took four points from three races, but I'm going to write that off as a fluke. I doubt we see that again from anybody anytime soon. Uh, but. I'm I'm with you on the fix. I think that's the logical next step with his program. Eric Jones is good. He's the youngest guy at Joe Gibbs Racing, but it's the fourth best Joe Gibbs car. And in order to improve, he needs to start beating the other Joe Gibbs cars. And that begins at the 1.5 mile tracks.
0: All right, next up, uh, the driver who just didn't make it. Almost in. Let's go with Ryan Newman, David. Um, Ryan Newman... You made the case for him, and for a long time, I I, I just thought he was going to be in. He came into the race, I think, plus 12. Um, look, we know the Ryan Newman story doesn't have the speed. The six car, you know, I think was 21st on the central speed charts, but he'd been overachieving all year, kind of came in with a buffer, but ran into the Roval. And up until about two laps to go, he was in position to advance. And then it was ultimately a mistake that, uh, on the track going through that chicane that cost him. Uh, the the few points that were needed to advance. But David, look back on Ryan Newman's season. What do you see?
1: Well, you mentioned the overachieving. Uh, they did overachieve, and overachieving should not be the expectation going into next season. Things will have to change, but you don't overachieve by accident. So here's what they did. They did three things. First, the number six car, wasn't that fast? You said 21st. That was probably the high end. It was 21st to 23rd in central I mean, speed, just depending on the week. I wrote about this for The Athletic. In the 11 race stretch in the middle of the season when their speed was at its best, they scored six of his 10 top 10 finishes. So they capitalized on the speed when they had it. Uh, second, Scott Graves delivered stage points in situations where green flag pit cycles, and the ends of stages coincided, Grays earned Newman 41 positions and scored 11 stage points. That doesn't seem like a lot, but those points mattered because they edged Daniel Suarez by four points for the final playoff spot. They don't get those stage points. They don't make the playoffs. And the third thing, this is pretty important, and I don't know if this can sustain going into 2020, Ryan Newman hardly crashed. This year, that crash rate was low uh, for Roush Fenway. He was the antithesis of Ricky Stenhouse. He crashed just three times during the regular season. Crashes mean losses of track position. Newman did not give up the track position handed to him. But moving forward for 2020, I'm assuming that their pathway to the playoffs was so good, so ingenious, that it will be something other teams will try to emulate. So my fix is to improve the speed of the car. And Alan, that is easier said than done, Uh, certainly. But I, I believe that that is the next step from this point. If they do the same things everyone else does because everyone else is trying to copy what they've already done, then the best blockade for that is to simply be higher in the running order. And improved speed means improved qualifying and improved results. It's the old-fashioned way, Alan, but this strikes me as the fix that will work. It just happens to involve... Uh, a lot of work and a great big undertaking. Yeah. Shouldn't be,
0: shouldn't be a problem whatsoever. No.
1: <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> they,
0: hey, look, they, they, they've improved. I, I think you could say they took a substantial step forward this year. Uh, I know that gets only gets harder as you get, you know, toward the top of the mountain, but who's to say it cannot be done again? And they still got some time, uh, this year to test things out now that they are out of the playoff. Uh, we've covered Eric Jones. We've covered Ryan Newman, Kurt Bush, another one who did not advance. Uh Sort of surprising when you, uh, maybe a 30,000 foot look, just in terms of how they started the season and Kurt Bush's pedigree, his, his talent, the fact that he's out of the playoff already um, got off to a hot start, a, a jump in production this late in, in anyone's career, David, maybe you could argue, but uh is impressive, right? I mean, especially Um, the way he did it with the one team, improving that team and moving over to another team and having the hot start that he did and and producing like they did throughout the season. But once we got toward the summer, it just didn't seem to be the same. And obviously the playoff did not do him much favors. Uh, among cup regulars, he had a top five surplus passing value, uh, delivering more positions than you would expect out of the car with that speed or where it's generally running. So he is a quality passer, and I think that contributed to a lot of his successes, especially, again, early on in the season, got the win in Kentucky. That's why we were talking about Kurt Busch for much of the season. As for a fix for 2020, something they can improve on. There were so many positives, David, for this one team. Uh, I was trying, you know, I hate to go looking for a negative, but when I was looking through all the statistics, uh amongst cup regulars, he was eight for restarts. He ranked 18th among the cup regulars uh from the preferred groove in terms of retention rate. And I just think a car with the speed that it has and his abilities, what he can do with a car, I think he needs to improve on his preferred groove restarts and being able to capitalize. Given the era that we are in of stage racing, uh, if they can just, if he could improve his restarts a little more, a little more from the preferred groove and, and get a few more spots right away. We know what he can do with his abilities and the speed of the car. If he improves that one spot, I think we'll, he'll be, we'll see an even bigger jump in production.
1: I think you're 100% correct on this. And I'm probably more concerned about this than you are. Um, mind you, since, The double file restarting was implemented. Kurt Busch, statistically, the best to ever do it. And let's look at 2018 versus 2019 here. Preferred Groove retention rate. In 2018, it was 90%. This year, it was
0: 73%.
1: And then the non-preferred Groove, it dropped from 61% to 42%. Now... Uh, look, th- this could be uh because of one of two things. One, it could be an adjustment to the rules package. This package doesn't allow him to do what he was able to do when he had full horsepower at his disposal. That's one possibility. Another possibility is he's in his 40s, and in your 40s comes decline, and that takes many forms. Could this be one? Uh Could we be witnessing... The beginning of the end for Kurt Busch. And if that is the case, then this Chip Ganassi Racing 1 team is going to have to be even better, more polished in 2020 to compensate for where their driver is lacking where it was previously a strength. Uh, so that's, that's certainly something that I'm going to be monitoring going forward. It's a shame. He, he used to be just amazing to watch on restarts. That just wasn't the case this year. And you're right. This is a short run world and that is going to be brutal if they don't clean that up going forward.
0: Yeah, it's like having all the skills, being the best sprinter, you know, out there in the world, and starting 10 yards back, I feel. You know what I mean? Like, you have all the skills, you can you can clearly perform, it, there's just a little bit of a handicap that you don't need to, to have for yourself, that you can, if it's fixable, I mean, you're right there performing, and I, I hopefully it is fixable for Kurt Busch and the one team, because uh, clearly a lot of the other skills were there this year, and uh, we'll see what he can do uh, next year, or even in the remaining races, to maybe Fix that and see what position he's in. We've hit Eric Jones, Kurt Busch, Ryan Newman. Finally, Eric Almirola not advancing after making it to the round of final, uh, the round of eight last year. He is out in the first round this year in 2019. David assess Eric Almirola.
1: Eric Almirola has the 16th best peer right now. He has the 13th fastest car. Uh, it would make sense that he has the 14th best average finish when you consider the other two numbers. Alan. his average starting spot is 11th, and that's the fifth best average starting spot. And that is really good for a team in need of initial track position and uh, perhaps early stage points. But the problems with this team happen once the race starts. Uh, it just it seems to go south. Crew chief Johnny Klausmeier, no favors to Team Kavana in the positive regression crew chief competition. The series' average retention rate on green flag pit cycles is 65%. Klaus Meyer retained Almarola's position 35% of the time. They entered those pit cycles with the top five position on eight occasions. They successfully defended position just once. Almerola is not a plus passer. He ranks 12th in restart retention from the preferred groove, but his 102 position loss from the non-preferred groove is the second biggest loss among all drivers. He is a driver who needs all the track position he can get. On top of that, they rank 15th in speed in the fourth and final quarter of races, suggesting they get slower or surpassed. Uh, by other teams as races progressed because remember 13th fastest car 15th fastest towards the end of races alan my uh my fix i can usually watch a driver and take something away something they do well or something they do bad i don't know what it says when i watch Almarola a lot over the over the course of i don't know going on 10 years now that I still don't know what he does. What does he do? What does he bring to the table other than sponsorship? Strictly talking from a competitive standpoint. This is not a blank slate. The slate's been there for a while, and there's nothing on it. If he's the driver of the 10 car, then the crew chief needs to put points on the board. Good qualifying can net you points in the first stage, the only stage points he scored in the playoffs came in the first stage. They got goose eggs in stage two. They need points in the middle part of the race. They need points on the race result. If Almarola brings nothing to the table or nothing that we can see or quantify, then it's on Klausmeier. Uh, that, that has to change. The way that they go about game planning and constructing a race to earn points and results, it has to change.
0: Four down, 12 more to go, competing for a title. We'll see what happens when we start in Dover this weekend. Next subject, David, some of the biggest news last week was a surprise to many, including two team owners, or at least one team owner and one driver. Ricky Stenhouse Jr. found out he was being replaced at Roush Fenway Racing by Chris Busher. and that led to obviously a lot of discussion. Uh, just, again, surprising news. A lot of these moves, a lot of driver moves are... Uh, talked about and there's rumors and discussion and they're planned for months. This one kind of came out of nowhere surprising a lot of people. But David, it did lead to an interesting tweet. I think I first saw it on Reddit, but I believe I tracked down the source at Seth Sharp 35 on Twitter. Sent out a tweet with some stats comparing Ricky Stenhouse Jr. to Martin Truex Jr. after the same amount of starts. The first 220 starts In their career, David, this, uh, according to the tweet, they, comparing the two saying, Hey, look, you know, look at how Martin Turex Jr. is doing now. Look what he did at the beginning of his career. Compare that to what Ricky Stenhouse did at the beginning of his career. And here are those numbers. One win for Martin Turex Jr. versus Ricky's two. They had the same number of top fives, 44 top tens for Martin Turex Jr. versus Ricky's 31 top tens. Uh, They are the same age. They both have two Xfinity titles after their first 220 starts. Basically what the tweet is saying is these are two comparable drivers after the early parts of their career, if you will. What's to say that Ricky Stenhouse Jr. does not turn one day into the next Martin Truex Jr., the next winner, the next potential cup champion? And David, when I saw this, it was eye-opening. It makes a good comparison. It makes a good, uh like, huh, look at, how about that? Look at those numbers. It immediately made me think uh, I-, I wanted to get your take on it because I know you could take a deep dive into this. And that's why this podcast exists to kind of go beyond the surface level comparison of just top fives and top tens and uh, career starts, if you will, and, and really dig into this and see if we can compare or contrast Ricky Stenhouse Jr. to Martin Truex Jr., after 220 starts. What did you think of this?
1: Uh, I mean, it it is an interesting point and it is worth the discussion. I have studied drivers dating back the last 20 years, looking at how their careers progressed uh, according to production and equal equipment rating. And for the most part, We know whether drivers will have above-average production for their careers within their first two seasons at the Cup Series level. The longer it goes past year two, the less likely they will have an above-average career. Martin Truex was a little bit of a late bloomer of sorts. He first delivered above-average production for his age in his third season. And he did it three times across his first seven seasons, but then he took a turn. He became a metronome of consistency. From 2011 to 2013, he scored a 1.6 production and equal equipment rating pretty much in each of those seasons. This is a good rating, one that will certainly keep you employed. It is not a great rating, but it was perfect for teams seeking clarity on where their programs are. I once wrote that Truex was a walking baseline. He was reliable, but then, and this is a, a bit rare, he improved first in production, but then also in passing. He joined Furniture Row Racing as a minus passer, but improved to an elite passer with every season he was there. And you can chart the rise of Furniture Row with the improvement in Truex's passing ability. Right now, he has the best surplus passing value in the series and the best preferred groove restart retention rate in the series. He's excellent, but it took some work for him to get there.
0: You lay out those stats and the baseline of it all, and there was questions still be had about Martin Truex Jr.'s career. Now throw the same assessment on Ricky Stenhouse Jr., if you will. Uh, Is it comparable when you do your look at it like you were breaking down Martin Truex Jr.?
1: I don't believe so. Uh, Ricky Stenhouse, in seven seasons at the Cup Series level, has never earned a peer above average for his age. He's never earned... Uh, his production rating above 1.0. At this point, the likelihood that he has uh, a Dale Jarrett late career renaissance is slim to none. Now, improvement takes on many forms, right? Truex became a much smarter, more efficient passer. Stenhouse right now, and in the last few years, is not a plus passer restarter, what have you. He can't just assume that this is the improvement he enjoys as he approaches his prime years on the aging curve. We don't know what Truex did to clean up his inefficient passing, and we cannot assume Stenhouse is going to follow the same path. Stenhouse had the highest crash frequency across the last several years. One could argue he made mistakes in year seven that he was making in year one and then some. The numbers on the surface level look the same, but we've dug a little deeper here. We've learned those numbers just don't represent the reality, and the reality is Stenhouse is on a negative trajectory compared to Truex, who is only shooting upward.
0: And isn't it odd the storyteller in me, David, would say, look at the incident in Richmond. Ricky Stenhouse spins and gets fired. Martin Truex Jr. spins and wins the race, right? And they run into each other. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's almost poetic.
1: Yeah, you know, and I was thinking back um, when this announcement was made, we had the episode where we had a a requiem for guys that just didn't make the playoffs. And Ricky Stenhouse is one of them. And I delivered the fix. I said that he should adapt his driving style. I never considered change the driver. That's far easier than adapting a driving style. But for Ricky Stenhouse, he's going to have to do that now. I mean, he, he's most likely going to have a ride less competitive than the one he's been used to. He cannot be the same guy. If he is, uh, if he's the same guy, he's going to crash a lot of cars and cause very serious problems to the budget of a team without the resources of Roush Fenway. And Roush Fenway isn't exactly swimming in cash. If he's going to succeed, he'll have to look like a completely different driver. Nothing we've ever seen, Alan. Conservative to the point of comedy. Just grabbing whatever low-hanging positions exist. And then from there, then we might see some improvement peripherally, and then the production rating will improve a little bit more than what just naturally occurs. Yeah, and you wonder what's open. There's front row motorsports,
0: um, maybe some questions at Stuart Haas Racing. Not that I've heard any rumor whatsoever, but we know he's close with Tony Stewart. Uh, that'd be certainly a surprise if that were to ever happen, but... Uh, we, we know Stewart was an advocate of of Ricky Stenhouse coming from the dirt racing discipline. I don't know if they could ever work together in the Cup series, but uh, we've seen stranger things and bigger surprises happen just in the last few weeks. But I, I do not know what's next quite yet for Ricky Stenhouse Jr. Uh, this, this news only a few days old, so
1: we'll just have to see. Ricky's agency with uh, KHI, owned by Kevin Harvick, also represents Ryan Priest at JTG Doherty, So there's already a connection there. Front Row Motorsports, Alan, his former crew chief, Mike Kelly, is uh, is one of the crew chiefs over there. So that could be a reuniting of uh, a two-time Xfinity Series title winner.
0: We shall see. Moving on to Dover, the second round of the Cup playoffs. David, they already raced there once this year. I believe it was uh, a rain-delayed race. So what did we learn this year at Dover, won by Martin
1: Truex Jr.? Per surplus passing value, the most efficient passers at Dover were Martin Truex and Alex Bowman. The top two finishers were Martin Truex and Alex Bowman. And I believe this means that for most, passing was a significant struggle, but for the two guys who could really pass, they received all the spoils. And it strikes me... We could be in for more of the same this weekend. I realize the, the diagnosis here is going to sound really simple, but those with the best handling cars, with cars that can turn in the corners, this will be a good race for them because I don't know that passing will be dependable. Again, that's a no-duh key to the race, right? Have a good car, but it is vital. And we, this could be a fairly straightforward affair, similar to Richmond, after which we were talking about Joe Gibbs racing and a significant amount of mechanical grip. So look, this is the kind of racing that is uh, bordering on boring at times, but that also means that it's up for grabs. If a crew chief can hit on a killer setup, maybe this is the race to go out and uh, and maximize the result.
0: Is it really up for grabs, though? Because I I say that only because it seems like when the cream has to rise, right, who is always there? It, It has been this year Martin Truex Jr. and Cole Pern winning these types of races, like the Richmond race, like the Dover race earlier this year, in terms of when you need good handling and someone that making it hard to pass, it seems like Martin Truex Jr., and that 19 car is the one that could make the passes. Why Why do you think they specialize in this? Is it just that when it almost – it's like it strips away all the other elements and it just goes to the best team and best crew with the best setup car. And right now, that seems to be Cole Pern and Martin Truex Jr.
1: delivering that. Yeah, it seems like they specialize in winning boring races, right? <laughs> yeah,
0: that's okay. Or they make it boring because so, they're so damn good. I don't know if it's chicken and egg or what have you.
1: No, I think you're right. I think you're onto something because the cream rises to the top when races break as they're supposed to, and I'm, and I'm putting supposed in uh, quotation marks. When there is no twist or drama or some kind of late race reset, Truex and Pern are good. They're, they're so good that if nothing strange happens, they're often in contention. That it takes a wild race to throw them off their trajectory is just a testament to their strength. So uh, a kind of race that just doesn't offer a lot of weird turns, it's going to cater to a good driver-crew chief combination like Truex and Pern, like Kevin Harvick and Rodney Shoulders, like Kyle Busch and Adam Stevens, where they were going to be good already. They didn't need your help. And if nothing happens, they're there. They're at the front of the field, and it's believable.
0: All right. And something that we have to look at are the restarts at Dover, especially given the uniqueness of the track. Uh, what did you learn or deduce, or what can we deduce, at least from, I don't know how far back you like to look, if it's just the one race earlier in the spring or looking back to last year. But in terms of restarts, the preferred, the non-preferred lane, which is it, and who benefits?
1: Yeah, so the first race at Dover uh, with this 550 horsepower package, the outside remained the same. It's the preferred groove. <laughs> no no, no, uh, no mystery there. Its occupants retained uh, 91% of the time in the spring race. Uh, the lead car never lost a spot, always stayed the leader, but... Uh, that's, I don't know. Is that to be expected now? Let's talk about the non-preferred groove. How about that? Thir- 32% retention Ooh. rate in the spring. And considering how many drivers struggled with passing, the non-preferred groove lane assignment dictated the rest of the ensuing run. Uh Chase Elliott restarted from third three times He got knocked around, lost multiple positions on two of those. That affected uh, his subsequent run. Kyle Larson had two restarts from the first three rows in the non-preferred groove, lost five spots in total. And those two are guys that are good at Dover. They've proved that in the past. One can argue in these cases, lane assignment trumped talent, which is weird. So keep note of this because this is a formula for a frustrating day. Um, I, you know what? I'll say it right now. There will be a good driver whose day is completely derailed because of lane assignment this weekend. Uh, so keep, keep an eye on that. that. That is my promise. Interesting stuff. Um, sometimes it's not always up to you. the
0: talent behind the wheel. We'll have to see. Keep an eye on that. Uh, something we like to do so far, you know, in these playoff races is just seeing who needs to perform now when we're looking toward the future. One of them being Talladega, which could always be, uh, kind of, you know, out of your hands at times, if you will, if you run into the big one. And uh, the other race is Kansas. Uh, not everyone created equal, not everyone uh, performing at those tracks, the mile and a half. So when we look at Dover, David, who is a driver that needs to maximize their potential at Dover with the other races in the round looming? Who who needs to ha- come out of this weekend uh, with the best that they are capable of?
1: Well, two drivers stick out to me, and they are both with Joe Gibbs Racing. Uh, oh. Martin Truex had really? the second fastest car at Dover in the spring, but he ranked 20th in speed at Kansas. He was a virtual no-show. Hmm. Uh, similarly, Denny Hamlin was... And not particularly good at either track, to be honest. 21st in speed at Dover, 17th at Kansas. Now, since he started returning to tracks for a second time with Chris Gabehart, they've shown growth, but I was discouraged by what I saw from them at Las Vegas, also a 1.5 mile track. Uh, I'm going to say we need to see a good Denny Hamlin performance this weekend just to pad his points position. Prior to Talladega and Kansas, and look, Martin Truex at Las Vegas—he showcased everything. But how real is it? It was only one race that they've performed uh, well on the 1.5-mile tracks, uh, the moderate intermediates this season, anyway. Can he do it again in Kansas? I don't know that I want to bet that he can, but he might want to take care of business at Dover. Interesting take at the top
0: of the field with some of the top performers. I I did not think of that when trying to answer this question. So interesting take, David. I looked at toward the bottom, you know, some of the drivers that just got in that that may need, uh, that certainly need help with points. I'm going with Clint Boyer. Clint Boyer, uh, I think, needs to maximize his day in Dover only because again, I like to look at the speed charts overall, uh, where the 14 car is in terms of central speed. I think for the year, uh, it's 12th. When you look at tracks like Dover, the mile tracks, the, you know, the mile to a little bigger, uh, it suddenly jumps up to ninth on the year. So they run better. Clint Boyer and, and that team are faster on tracks like this. So they need to maximize that. And when you look forward to a track like Kansas, the moderate mile-and-a-half tracks, I looked at his passing numbers, David. Surplus passing value for Clint Boyer is 3.22%. To put that in perspective, the only drivers that is better than are Cody Ware, Joey Gase, and Bailey Curry on the season. Oh. So what I'm saying is you might want to get wow. as much as you can at Dover because it appears like on tracks like Kansas – Clint Boyer's having a little trouble passing this season, and you don't want to, if you're going to struggle one place, you got to maximize your efforts at a place like Dover where you have shown improved speed compared to the rest of the season. I'm going with Boyer.
1: Yeah, the last time he was at Kansas, he was bewildered as to why Eric Jones, uh, wouldn't let him buy at the end of the race. I remember. It didn't, it, it was a decent result, but it was a, a very questionable, uh, philosophy from, uh, Mr. Boyer, but that's actually probably a pretty good choice.
0: All right. And as always, we end it with, uh, what do we want to see this weekend, David? I'll let you go first. What do you want to see in Dover?
1: I'm going to be really weirdly specific here. Dover isn't often a race affected by crew chief design, right? So let's shake that up. I want to see caution flags in the laps prior to stage breaks because that would force crew chiefs into some uncomfortable decisions. Stage points or track position on the restart after the stage break. We saw on the Roval, Rodney Childers make a decision to forfeit second place stage points so that he could get track position. But that was the logical decision because the four car had already clinched a spot in the next round. They didn't need to pad points. Now they might have to. So I'd like to see some crew chiefs squirm this weekend. That decision is not so clear cut for all of these guys. And I want to see the, the path that those decisions take.
0: All right, not bad. Um, I'm not going to make any sense with what I'm about to say, David. I, I apologize, but um, I either want to—I a... either
1: want to see some
0: parity, as I always call it. For we've we've talked about on this uh, podcast before. One of our episodes, "What Makes a Good Race," and I always talk about parity in terms of how many leaders and how many laps they lead. I would love to see some parity in this race. Four drivers leading 80 laps or more. I, I Again, I love storylines. I love different leaders, comers, and goers. What have you? Just different players, people who may be able to be a contender at the end or at least throughout the race. So I either I either want that extreme parity with four drivers, 80 laps led or more, or I want an ass whooping from someone other than JGR, from someone other than the 19. Maybe someone like Kevin Harvick goes out there and leads 180, 200 laps and at least reinforces that this isn't a JGR runaway um, if you remember Rodney Childers' comments from just a few weeks ago at Richmond, he was a little dismayed by what we were about to see uh, from the JGR guys, the mechanical grip that they had. I don't know if they wouldn't found it, but, again, this is what we want, maybe pie in the sky. I want to see someone go out there and make a statement against the JGR crew if indeed it's going to happen. So, David, I either want a lot of people competing with each other or I want one non-JGR car putting an ass-whooping on the field.
1: Okay, cool. So I'm just going to text you during the race and just continuously ask, are you happy now? Uh, and you just keep me up to date on that because I, I mean, I don't know, man. I, you do you. When Martin Truex Jr. leads
0: 230 laps, I will text you and say, I am unhappy right now. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Good episode. Good stuff. Episode 37 of Positive Regression. Don't forget we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary wherever you listen to your podcasts. We are available. If you like what you're hearing, and we know you do, we love hearing your feedback. Leave us a rating or a review. That stuff, it really does help in the podcast world. It helps us gain some visibility. Make sure you tell your friends, too. If you like racing and you like this podcast, then I assure you, your friends will as well. So your help in spreading the word is appreciated. If you ever have any questions, we would love to answer them on this podcast. Reach out to us on Twitter at POSREGPOD, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you're always working hard. I saw you working hard. I saw the work in progress. This is a little pulling in the curtain back. Listeners, I saw the work in progress. The central speed rankings being calculated, I saw them at Charlotte Motor Speedway. It was a cool process
1: to watch, David. What are you working on? Uh, certainly central speed rankings are already posted on The Athletic. Um, this week, another cheat sheet in advance of the Xfinity Series cutoff race uh, for their playoffs. Uh, that will be posted on motorsportsanalytics.com. And a cool thing, the intrepid staff of The Athletic will conduct a round two roundtable discussion. I have an idea of what I'm going to say. I have no idea what Jeff Gluck and Jordan Bianchi could write. Uh, it could be really good. It could also be a disaster. But either <laughs> way, it will be worth checking out. So please do.
0: Awesome stuff. I will uh, be taking a vacation. So, David, I will be watching the race from afar. I'll be watching Dover from... Close to the cliffs of Dover over in England. So uh, knock on wood there. That'll be fun. Uh, but make sure you just watch Race Hub and uh, all the racing action over the weekend. Race Day on FS1 coming to you from Dover. So make sure you watch that. I will be watching uh from overseas as well. And, uh, yeah, just make sure you keep it on NASCAR. And that, that's all we can ask for. And make sure you come back and listen to Pog Positive Regression. I, I showed it at our Twitter handle. I'm sorry, David. Make sure you listen to Positive Regression as well uh, next week. But as always, thank you for listening, and we appreciate it. So have a great weekend. Enjoy everything. Enjoy the racing, the second round of the Cup Playoffs. For David Smith, I'm Alan Cavana. Have a great weekend, everybody.